Jim Derrick and welcome to a special edition of Chapters. On today's program, we're going to dig back into the archives and listen to two interviews that I found particularly compelling. First up is our interview with Susan Rosen, who came to us in November of 2017 to talk about what it was like to live with an incurable disease, metastatic breast cancer. Susan passed away this past January 19th, 2019. She was a beloved member of the Franklin community. Her interview was both uplifting and compelling, and I am just honored that I was able to share this time in the studio with her. So here is Sue Rosen. Today in studio, we have a very special guest, Susan Rosen. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. I'm so glad to meet you. I've seen you on Franklin Almanac. I've read about you. I've read your blog, and I'm, I'm really thrilled that you're here. Me too. Thank you. Susan, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and where you grew up and how you came to Franklin. Okay. Uh, well, I grew up in the Sturbridge area, mm-hmm. and I uh, went to college at UMass Amherst, and I met my husband there. Mm-hmm. And we uh, started dating and mm-hmm. got married, mm-hmm. and we were living in Melrose. Uh, we both were working in Boston. And uh, then we moved to West Peabody, Okay. And we knew we weren't going to stay at West Peabody. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, is this before the children? This is before children. Okay. Yep. And while I was in um, West Peabody, I did have my children. Mm-hmm. And we wanted some better schools and a nice community. And uh, we wanted to build a new home. And uh, we looked up and down 495 because my husband works in Marlboro. Okay. And uh, we decided on Franklin. And mm-hmm. it's the best move we ever did. That's great. How long ago did you move here? We've been here 14 years. 14 years. Okay. All right. And um, so you have two children. Yes, I have two children. Two children and a dog? And a dog, my Wally dog. All right. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, So you are are cruising along as a mom. The kids went through the Franklin school system. Yes. And um, uh, everything's going pretty well. You're a suburban mom, enjoying life. Yep. And uh, you get hit with um, hit with something along 2010. Yeah. So I um, when my um, youngest son, uh, Max, started kindergarten, um, I have a degree in early childhood education. So I started uh, substitute teaching. Yep. And that's great. Uh, all the elementary schools, lots of fun. And then um, 2010, during the summer, mm-hmm. I, I noticed a big lump. When I say big, I mean big. Yeah. Lump under my armpit yeah. and uh, had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. So I have a nurse practitioner who I absolutely love. And I went to see her and yep. she didn't think too much about it, but she did send me to the breast surgeon. Mm-hmm. And from there, I had the biopsy, ultrasound. And uh, a couple days later, I got a call and the breast surgeon's on the line and she said I have the pathologist on the other line and um, I just want to let you know that she has noticed some malignancy mm-hmm. and you have cancer mm-hmm. and I look kind of went, went into a little bit of shock and said breast cancer and right. she said yes you need to come in we need to do a mammogram and some more ultrasounds and uh, so we did that and um, turned out the big lump was a swollen lymph node right um, so after that, um, 
I had to have surgery right. to remove the lump, and I had an axillary uh, dissection on my right side, and um, that's the removal of lymph nodes. Okay. And I had 42, which is a huge amount of lymph that's nodes. That's a big load, That's right? a big, yeah. yeah. When people have 10, they think that's a lot. Yep. Um, uh, so 42 cancerous lymph nodes removed. Right. So, Sue, um, yeah. if I could just stop you there for a second. Sure. Um, when you get, between the time you get that news and the time that they decide to have surgery, about how much time goes by? Um, they like to do the surgery right away. Okay. They want to get the so cancer out of you. It's fairly quick. It's fairly quick. I can only imagine, literally, I can only imagine the range of emotions going through your mind and and, and your family's mind at right. that time. And we've just, we just met 15, 20 minutes ago, and I, I have to tell our listeners, if you want to have a ray of sunshine and positivity walk through your door, please invite Su- Susan Rosen over. <laughs> um, there is nothing glum about Susan, to say the least. Um, in fact, you shared with me you were actually comforting people after I, your, your I, original diagnosis. Absolutely. Yeah. I had people coming crying to me, and I had to comfort them, hold them, you know, hold their hand, give them yeah. hugs, and tell them everything's going to be all right, because I truly believed everything was going to be all right. Sure. Sure. So you get that original diagnosis and you have to rally the family. I'm Mm -hmm. sure there's a lot of shock. Oh, yes. And you go into research mode, or, or did you not have time for that? Well, yes. Um, I'm a re- I love Google. Um, okay. So, yes, I did a lot of research. and So you're in research mode. You go in for surgery? Yes. So I had the surgery. And then after that, um, the, the, the plan of treatment was chemotherapy mm-hmm. and radiation. Mm-hmm. And then because my uh, breast cancer is hormone receptive, I was going to go on um, tamoxifen, which okay. Okay. is a well-known drug to supposedly prevent a recurrence. And this is... You... So it was a little... So at this point, you're at stage three. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Cancer. So, yes, I was diagnosed at stage three C invasive ductal carcinoma. Okay. And that... Um, is already advanced. Right. Even though it was caught early, they they went back and looked at my mammogram from a year ago because I always went yearly, and there was no sign of anything. Really? And my tumor, oh my goodness, my tumor was very, 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 very tiny. But my oncologist explained to me if you looked at it under a microscope, aggressive. So really? that's already I, I was stage three. So mm-hmm. that's 2010. You just said you started the chemo and it was horrific. Yeah, it's it's uh, pretty bad chemo. Um, <laughs> The uh, dreaded adriamycin is the uh, is a, a red uh, chemo treatment, mm-hmm. and that is just awful. Um, I I ended up having a blood transfusion um, because it brought my blood uh, red blood counts down so low okay. being on it, and also I slept seventeen hours a day. I was so tired. Wow. Here I have these young kids. Yeah, and they were at, high school age at that point. Uh, right? Not even. Not my even. son wasn't. Okay. No. Um, and they would come home from school, Mommy, did you eat? How are you feeling? What can we do for you? Right. And, and such sweet kids. I, I, I'm blessed to have such a loving family yeah. and friends. They started doing meals for me. There was a meal every night for us. I had friends. My kids weren't at, uh, weren't the age to drive, so my friends brought them to their activities after mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, so, I'm so grateful for them because I, I did need a lot of help. And yeah. believe me, it's hard to ask for help, especially when you're the person who likes to help others. I was just thinking that. You just oh. took the words out of my mouth. I I can see it in it's, your eyes. Yeah, it's yeah. it was so hard. My it's, guess is you've delivered quite a few meals in your day. Uh, yes, I. Yeah. You know, I want to be the helper. I don't yeah, want the. Right. I don't want to be the one on the other end receiving the help. Sure. And so it was so hard to ask. But, but, I think what I've taught people is just do it. Don't even ask me because you know I'm going to say no. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, people would be going to the grocery store. Yep. 
what do you need? Not, I'm going, do you need anything? What do you need? Or something like that. Right, yeah. right. It's to make that assumption and just and just take take the guesswork out of it for you so you don't have the opportunity to say, I'm all good. Uh, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. right. So um, uh, after 2010, um, things, things you have a three really, really good years. Yeah. You know, I had a, I had radiation after the chemo mm-hmm. and, um, and then I had another surgery to prevent ovarian cancer because of the gene mutation Mm -hmm. and uh life was great yeah life was great we traveled a lot we went to hawaii you were in bermuda i uh, yeah that was a recent one that That, was recent yeah it was recent that was this summer yeah Yeah. um you know we traveled we we did we just did a lot of things making memories because who knows you know and then um michaela graduated um high school and so she got to decide where we were going for summer vacation in Mm -hmm. 2013 and she decided disney world because we're big disney fans oh good yeah so we go to disney world uh but before that, let me explain one thing. I was taking a shower one day, and I noticed a lump on the top of my head. On the top of your head. Top of my head. And I thought, hmm, was that there? You know, sometimes you find something, and it's yeah. like, was it always there? Right. So I kind of ignored it. You know, sure. I was feeling fine, you sure. know. So, and um, vacation was great. We had a great time, made mm-hmm. some nice memories. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I started thinking, you know, I, I need to get checked. I need to get checked. I, I don't feel right. I just started not feeling myself. Right. But... I'm a mom and my kids come first. And so I needed to get Michaela ready to go to Washington, D.C. for college. And Max was starting high school. So once they were settled, I went and got my hair done when I had hair. Mm -hmm. And I asked my hairstylist about the bump or lump on my head. Sure. She said, no, Susan, that that wasn't always there. If I were you, I'd I'd certainly get it checked out. So I thought, okay. So I made an appointment with my nurse practitioner who I love and... um, I went in and she did an x-ray on the lump. She gave me some Prilosec for my stomach yeah. and she did some blood work. Sure. I didn't know what she was doing for blood work, but she did. And later that day, I got a call from her and I thought that was strange too because usually she'd have a nurse call me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I started feeling in my stomach, oh, something's not right. And yeah. she said to me, um, Susan, I want you to make an appointment with your oncologist. Um, I'm not happy with some of your blood results. Right. And she said, it could just be a virus. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, okay. Um, can, it, can it wait for two weeks? I have an appointment in two weeks. And she said, I'd rather not. And I just got that knot in my stomach. Sinking feeling. I knew. I, I had a feeling the cancer was bad. Yeah. So I had a PET scan done. Yeah. And it did show that my cancer metastasized to my um, bones and my liver. Right. And so I'm still at Dana Fiber in Milford at this point, but... Since the cancer has metastasized and I carry this gene mutation, my oncologist in Milford um, wanted me to go into Boston. Sure. You, you've now gone from the stage three mm-hmm. cancer that you had to metastatic cancer. A deadly cancer. A deadly cancer. It's the only can- breast cancer you die from. Right. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Before we do, I just want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Susan Rosen. Susan is living with metastatic breast cancer. She is has graciously given us some time in the studio here so that we could get to chat with her. So, Susan, you've now got this diagnosis of metastatic cancer. Cancer, and you've got a whole new uh, thought process in terms mm-hmm. of treatment and in terms of outcome. Right. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I questioned, you know, there was just so much going on in my life at the time with the kids. And I questioned, why did this happen? Yeah. Uh, not 
not why me, but why did this happen? Because I did everything I was supposed to pre- to prevent a recurrence. And then the doctor looked at me and he said, it just sometimes happens. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And and I really wanted to save some time, and, and I appreciate you uh, sharing with me before the show some of your philosophies. Um, Susan has a, a wonderful blog uh, out that if you haven't taken a look at it, I really encourage people to look at it. One of the, the post entries is why let us be mermaids. And I absolutely love this. And the very first line here, I was looking at it last night is mermaids have no fear of depths. Mermaids have a great fear of shallow living. Susan wrote that, uh, with her daughter. Um, and I just find that sitting with Susan right here in the studio and having spoken with her uh, beforehand, she certainly does not live a shallow life. We got into a conversation. I felt like I'd known her for a year or two after about 15 minutes. So, Susan, I kind of wanted to get into that. Um, You've now got this metastatic cancer, which is a terminal illness, and you know that. Um, And you share with me a little bit about your reaction before, and it wasn't why me. There's a big distinction, right, Right. between why me and and why did this happen? You were following the doctor's orders, and you were were just questioning how come those doctor's orders didn't bear fruit. Exactly. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a big difference between that and the victim mentality, right? Right. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, in the beginning, too, it was, you know, I never questioned why me because why anyone? Right. I'm no better than anyone else. Cancer and most illnesses do not discriminate. Right. Any, this can happen to anyone. Right. And so, you know, I just decided that when I, my cancer metastasized that, you know, I'm not defined by my metastatic breast cancer because I'm, I'm so much more. Cancer doesn't define who I am. Right, right. And, and you shared with me another story that I'd really like you to reshare. And that was uh, um, about being forgotten. Yeah. You know, it's everybody's going to die. Right. Everybody, it's, it's just it's what happens. Um, but there are people who don't want to be forgotten. But their cancer has nothing to do with that. It's it's how you lived your life. It's how you lived your life. It's Yeah. 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 And, and I just find that extremely powerful um, because what you're saying is you're in charge. Exactly. You're in charge of your of your destiny. You're in charge of whether what your legacy is and Absolutely. How, just as we all are. Exactly. So once again, you're not defined by metastatic breast cancer. You're Susan Rosen. Right. Mom, wife, daughter, neighbor, yes. friend. Absolutely. Oh, and by the way, yeah. you have metastatic yes, breast cancer. It's, so yeah. I mean that's how you seem to live to me. Yeah, that's that's how I live. So thank you for sharing that. Your children have been very involved with uh with your with your medical process yes you haven't shielded them away or isolated no, them or no anything like no that. they've come, a big lesson in that yeah and they've come with me to treatments yeah. and and to see what it's like yeah. and you know they know um you know there's a little joke there um there's not a lot of jewish cemeteries around here but okay. i did i did look at one and and um i didn't like it because there were no gravestones really <laughs> i wanted a gravestone so um i visited another uh, cemetery and, and we like that and okay. that's where my husband and I and I decided we're going to be buried. Okay. You know, I've talked to my rabbi yep. about this kind of business and uh, you know, he joked around, we're gonna need a big place for you and you know, it, it'd be very yeah. sweet. Yeah. And um, so the kids are in, are involved in all this, mm-hmm. you know, and 
and I'm living right now, and, and I get to plan my funeral and my obituary, and I think it's kind of great. Right, right. And um, you the, haven't you haven't ceded your control to metastatic breast no, cancer. You no. haven't given up control. No, it's, I I'm yeah. still in control. Yeah, it may think it's in control, but uh, uh-uh. yeah, I hate it and it knows it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but it gets back to a yeah. theme that that I that I hear a lot from resilient people, and I'm sitting in front of without a doubt one of the most resilient people that I met. And that's that. And that's that definition thing. You know, right. it's the definition. Am I going to define myself by what happens to me or who I am? Yeah. You know. Yeah. And who you are clearly hasn't changed. No. No. I'm the same. Uh, same. You know. Uh, person. And, and what a gift for your children and your family and your friends. Yeah. Uh, to, 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 <laughs> to and as you said to to be able to to be able to um, define yourself and make your own mark. Right. Um, and not let something else so you know. Uh, define you is is got to be pretty empowering in a way. Yes, it is. Is it? It is. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I have a great life, and I didn't want to change anything. Yeah. And I wanted the kids to have a you know yeah. there's this stability. Tell me about your children. What's your daughter's name? So my daughter is Michaela. Yeah. And she recently graduated from the George Washington um, University. You must be so proud of her. So proud. Um, magna. Wait, what's the highest? Magna. Oh, summa cum you're laude. Challenging what? me because I never. Yeah, I, never I think even it was flirted mag- with it. No, summa cum laude. <laughs> summa yeah, cum laude, I okay. have to brag. She's a smarty. Um, and she she has plans, hopefully, to go to law school okay. and become a health lawyer. Okay. And my Max is um, started his freshman year at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, his Which dad, is your alma mater. That's my husband. And your yes, alma and that's mater. where my husband and I met. So okay. I always tease Max. Oh, maybe you're going to meet your yeah. wife here. And what was his major? So he is also a smart cookie. Um, I know I sound like I'm bragging, but I'm you so proud of my not. children. He um, is into um, computer science. Great. He's already got apps out. Um, when he was 15, I think he was 15, he developed his first app. My wife's a consultant. He may want to oh, cool. see if maybe there's some networking opportunities. Yeah, we'll talk. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk, talk after, yeah. definitely. But yeah. uh, it was really funny because when we moved him in this year, um, the chancellor came up and everyone was like, ooh, the chancellor, the chancellor. Yeah. And he came over to me to talk to me. Yeah. And so I told him I was an alumni and and uh, he asked me about my son, what he, what he was studying here. And sure. I said, computer science. And he said, oh, he must be a smart one because we don't accept many of those. And I, I just had this sense of pride. I was How just so not? happy. How could you not? And, you know, I have to give my kids credit for all they had to see and go through. They kept up with everything. And I really, I'm so proud of them. And, and that's why I'm bragging about them. Because to go through what they had to is terrible. To, to see me so sick and... And just so weak, and 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 they kept up with everything. You know what, Susan? That is such an important point. Um, you know, the kids have a choice too, and they yeah. and they have their own free will. I used to think I was control of the kids, and, yeah. and you know what? We're not. Um, they You're all right. have their own You're free right. will. Mm-hmm. I will say that training from someone like you is probably done them pretty well. <laughs> I hope um, so. Having met you, but but having said that, the kids' response to this has been something that you are extremely p- proud of. I can see it yes. through your through your eyes. You shared with me, well, first of all, your daughter and you collaborated on the mermaid. And my son, piece. too. And, and you your know, son, too. It was actually my kid's idea to do the blog. Is 
that right? Yes, because everybody wanted me to write a book. Uh-huh. I don't have time to write a book. And I just not. felt like, oh, God, that would just take too much time. Yeah. So the kids said, what about a blog? And yeah. bingo. Yeah. The lights went you know, out, and that was what we were going to do. And actually, the picture on um, my blog page is a, pi- a photo that my son took while we were in Hawaii. Really? So we incorporate a lot of... I um, thought that was Bermuda. This, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's Hawaii. Yeah. Okay, the, the blog name is Let Us Be Mermaids. Again, it's Susan Rosen. Your your kids and you obviously share something very, very special. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you are absolutely leaving behind uh, a legacy of um, joy and, and appreciating every day and transparency and honesty. Yeah, well, I tried to teach them, and, and, and this is... This is my mantra. I just, you know, I let go of what was, I accept what is, and I have faith in what will be. Sure. And I have tried to teach the kids, if there's something you have no control over or you can't change, don't let it worry you. You're wasting precious time worrying about something that's not going to change. Right, right. And so many of us live with one foot in the future and one foot in the past. And the problem is the present is gone. Yeah. And that's all we really have, isn't it? Right. Isn't right. it? Um, Susan, we, we've covered a lot of area. Is there is there anything that, that, that you want folks to know in particular about uh, either you or metastatic uh, breast cancer or, or anything that we haven't covered? Yeah, I mean, just keep on living. Yeah. Keep on living, moving forward. Do, do what you want to do. When you feel good, just keep up with your normal things. But, you know, and speaking of normal, it's a new normal. You know, I can't work out like I used to anymore. Sure. You know, so things change like that. But do what you want to do. Travel, you know, garden, paint. Um, just keep on living. I love what you said there. And and really, you're not just talking to cancer patients. You're no. talking to all of us. This is everyone. This is everybody. This is everyone. Because guess what? I could take a right-hand turn out of here and get hit by a bus Nobody knows. My breast surgeon told me that at one point. She said, you know, so you could leave my office and get killed by yeah. a car. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. We just don't know. And, you know, the average um, life expectancy is about three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I just passed my fourth year with, mm-hmm. with the metastatic breast cancer. And, you know, I've met people who have gone 17 years, you know, but that's not for everyone. Sure. So just keep on doing what you're doing. You because, only have today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And don't and don't put it off. Um, right. So, Susan, what a powerful message and story you've shared with me today. I feel I, I just feel so grateful to have met you and oh. so thankful that you were willing to come in and share your light and your positivity. Oh, thank you for this opportunity. I, I wish we were on television. If, <laughs> if people could see your smile, uh, it lights up a room. And um, I, I've learned something today. I've learned a lot today. Oh, good, uh, good. And I know our listeners have. Our next interview is with Woody Giesman, founding member of the band The Del Fuegos. This took place in January 2018 when Woody visited our studio to talk about his fascinating history with his band and also the events that led him to opening his own substance abuse treatment center right here in Boston. So here's Woody. If you were listening to music in the 80s, there's no doubt that you're familiar with Boston's own Del Fuegos. The Del Fuegos burst onto the scene with a string of hit records and went on to enjoy international success including touring with such rock icons as ZZ Top, In Excess, and even the legendary Bruce Springsteen. In studio today, we have a founding member of the Del Fuegos, Mr. Woody Giesman. 
Woody will share with us stories of life on the road and how he managed to transition from a rock and roll musician to opening one of the nation's premier substance abuse treatment centers located right here in our backyard. All that and more coming up next on Chapters. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Chapters. My name is Jim Derrick, and I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Mabardi. And today in studio, it is Mr. Woody Giesman. Woody Giesman, the founding member of the Del Fuegos and drummer extraordinaire. Woody, welcome. Hey, thanks, guys. It's good Thank to, you. Good to meet you. Thanks for being here. Uh, the Del Fuegos, for anybody that haven't listened to them, very, very cool band. Uh, they were hot in the 80s. Woody, how did you get started in the music business, and how did you find the Del Fuegos? Or how did they find you? Yeah, so, you know, interesting. I uh, ran into this uh, woman, Lily Dennison, who was their official, uh, uh, their official manager, she was actually uh, the waitress at the Rat Skeller in uh, in Kenmore Square. So it was a very formal process. I exactly. See. Yeah. So she, she walked up to my bar stool and she said, "You're that musician guy," and I'm like, "Yeah." And she said, "So the the Del Fuegos are come. I mean, the the band, my band. She kept calling him my band. Uh, uh, needs a drummer, and so that night." We were like out the door, and um, at midnight we were playing a birthday party for I don't know if it was Jim Sullivan, but some writer here okay. in Boston, uh, Globe writer, uh, and uh, um, you know the next thing I know we're rehearsing and doing shows, and um, I think one month, a month of thirty. 31 days we did like 28 gigs we were wow. playing so much clubs these are all clubs clubs loft parties you know your backyard wherever and uh um there was this rumor that the record companies in los angeles were seriously looking at boston uh for the next signing f of a of a band and we happened to be uh the first in line so i mean obviously boston had you know, the Jay Giles band yeah. and Aerosmith and, yeah. and uh, a number of Boston, the Cars, yeah. Boston. Yeah. Boston has a an amazing music scene. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, so, so you're here. You are playing clubs, and and this is such a cool story. I'm going to let you tell it because you go from playing the Rat Skeller, which I've been to, um, holds what. 300 maybe i don't remember maybe, but yeah that, i mean i'm sure they were they were i could tell you that how many they were a, how many were they supposed thank you to yeah, hold yeah. versus so how many a few they did hundred hold. people pops. yeah <laughs> okay yeah. so a few hundreds people it's a niche and, venue yeah you guys get a phone call uh, it had an odor about it yeah. that's what i remember I don't know that I've ever been there, but even I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Woody, uh, who takes the phone call from a particular band that says, hey, you guys want to do a gig, uh, and it's a little different than what you've been doing? 
Well, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I mean, let's back it up just a few months because we went to Los Angeles. We signed with Slash and Warner Brothers Records, and we uh, were paired up with uh, Mitchell Froom, uh, an amazing producer, musician, arranger. Um, um, and we were going to be actually his first band that he had produced. Huh. And he's since gone on to produce Paul McCartney. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, Elvis Costello, um, Peter Gabriel, Los Lobos, and, you know, everyone. So we we recorded this album. It took us a few months, uh, pre-production and recording. Um, and then we uh, we got it in the can, and, and the album is called The Longest Day. Um, and uh, Rolling Stone magazine gave us three and a half out of four stars. Wow. Impressive. And right so out of the gate. we were like, that's cool, man. Someone actually likes us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, which was cool. That was that alone was cool. We had no understanding of how far-reaching Rolling Stone uh, magazine was. Uh, but we scheduled a, re- a record release party at the Rat Skeller in Kenmore Square. And <laughs> where else would you back, do that? Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. right. Where were, you, where were you born? Sure. Right there at Kenmore Square. Sure. So... We came back and we had a Friday night uh, record release party. We were all excited and all of our friends and fans were going to be there, packed in this smelly space. Um, oh. <laughs> and uh, the phone rings and Billy Gibbons uh, from ZZ Top called and said, hey, what are you guys doing? And we're like, wow, man, well, we're doing a record release party in Boston, um, you know. And he goes, well, why don't you come on down to, and play a little gig with us tomorrow night? Uh, at, at uh, Nassau Coliseum. <laughs> and so we're like, okay. Literally the next mm-hmm. night. Literally, the, yeah. So we went from a Friday night. Um, at the Rat Skeller. At the Rat Skeller uh, and drove to New York. And, and uh, there we were at, um, you know, 18,000 seats. All, wow. um, which was uh, uh, kind of a f- scary event for me. We had, uh, you know, as a drummer... Um, and an artist, you know, I like to think about the space and we had just played this little space, the Rat Skeller, and I had to kind of rethink my performance and see how these songs that we had just recorded were going to translate in this large space. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting challenge. Uh, we did it. We went on stage. We did it. I'm not going to say how well we did it, but we did it. And Billy said, hey, man, that was cool. Why don't you come to the Spectrum tomorrow night? We're going to do a couple of nights at this little place in Philadelphia. And we're like, okay, so now we're doing, you know, we're going to Philadelphia. So I'm up all night rethinking, um, you know, how do these songs translate? And mm-hmm. I really felt like... Um, we did so much better, and we learned, you know, lessons learned, you know. You, you, you mean the second night you did so much better? Correct. Yeah. Okay, so that that's interesting because, Sarah, I would not be thinking about things like what he was thinking, and this is why he's who he is, and I'm who I am. Um, I'm an air guitarist. Um, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about where's my Pepto-Bismol, um, how am I going to calm my nerves, and do they have Depends? on the stage because I just can't imagine that that optic of going from you know 300 sweaty smelly people to the Nassau Coliseum well we had Bud, Budweiser instead okay. of Pepto-Bismol there you go Very it good. was many and, years and I, ago Woody not to date you how old were you then 
Oh, geez. Well, to uh, date you. The heck with to it. date me, yeah. yeah. So I think I was the oldest member of the band. Yep. The youngest being Warren Zanes, yep. um, uh, who was 19, and uh, I was 22 or 23. That's right, a lot to age. take in. That's a lot to take in. And from there, uh, what was your introduction to Tom Petty? Because that's an interesting story. Well, yeah. So here we are back in Los Angeles. Uh, we had had some touring under our belt. I think we toured the United States. We w- toured Europe. Came back to the United States, and it was time to go do our second album. Um, and so we we uh, relocated to Los Angeles, and we did. We were um, given three nights at the Roxy uh, on Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. We didn't, you know, we could have played a bigger theater, but we thought, let's play, you know, the Roxy multiple nights. That's cool. Mm -hmm. And so I don't remember which member. I think it was Tom Lloyd, our bassist, or maybe it was Warren Zanes, the guitar player, kind of leaned into the microphone uh, and said, hey, does anyone know Tom Petty? And... uh, it was probably Warren Zanes. It sounds like something he would do. Um, and so, uh, you know, th- that night we get, went back to from the Roxy down to our hotel room at the Hyatt or the Riot House on Sunset Strip. Um, and the phone rang about 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and it was Tom saying, Hey, man, you, know, uh, you guys want to come on over? And uh, So we're like, okay. Um, so, you know... It was it was wonderful uh, for someone whose music we loved anyway, um, and in fact Warren Zanes started his day with a Tom Petty song every day. No kidding. Yeah, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, the damn the torpedoes album would go yeah. on, uh, and so um, it was just it was wonderful to have this. Um, you know, to have someone extend their hand and say hello and make us feel like someone liked us, first off. Um, uh, but also, he's such a Southern gentleman, you know. Interesting. So we went over to his house and we hung out. And the next thing I know, we're, he's like, has this idea of, hey, we should go on the road. And so we went out and we did, we toured the United States. Um, I don't remember if we did Europe as well. Uh, but I, th- I think it was a uh, hundred shows in these outdoor, you know, theaters like um, Great Woods at the time. I think we did two nights at Great Woods. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that called now? It was Great Woods. I keep forgetting. Uh, it was Tweeter, and now it's uh, it's something. It's Xfinity Center. I liked it yeah, as yeah. Great I Woods. Mean, I like the so places yeah. like Great Woods. But uh, so you you came home there. You must have had a heck of a following in Boston coming out to see and. Um, open for Tom Petty yeah well I yeah and that was great but really I think there was a relationship there and there was this kind of camaraderie of artists coming together and it was wonderful because every night um, you know we had an encore song we picked the the clash should I stay or should I go oh yeah and so we would perform and then Petty would perform and then we would all come out and the Georgia satellites would oh come on and so you know Every night, someone, you know, Stevie Nicks or, you know, someone would show up, uh, 
Roger McGuinn, you know, who knows who the hell was going to show up. That's awesome. Uh, And we would do this encore together. Oh, man. We're going to keep going with this conversation. I just want to remind people we are uh, speaking with Woody Giesman. Woody is one of the founding members of the Del Fuegos. He's a drummer. Uh, And uh, we're talking, uh, uh, my co-host Sarah Mabardi and I are talking to Woody about the early days of the Del Fuegos. And now we're getting on to when they're they're performing with Tom Petty. And and a relationship is forming there that uh, lasts to this day. Uh, We're sad that we just lost Tom Petty. And um, Woody was sharing with us a painting that he's done uh, to uh, memorialize Tom, which is really something. I hope there's a, a place where we can find that painting sometime. It's it's really something. You can Google Woody Geisman paintings. Okay. And uh, mm-hmm. see my website. All right, and it's WoodyGeisman.com. Do you have I'm a Do you have a website? Yeah, yeah I think it is. Um, I, on my podcast, uh, on our podcast, ChaptersRadio.com, I will put up a link to Woody's. You can uh, just find me on Facebook. And uh, yeah, there you go. There you go. So, Woody, um, I just mentioned a friendship, but but you you were alluding to that that a relationship was developing uh, with uh, Tom and, and the band in general. Yeah, I mean it was it was wonderful because you know working with such a an amazing songwriter and again a very much a southern kind of gentleman. Um, you know, we went in to do our third album, and and we said, Tom, you want to come on in and join us? So we actually had a wonderful uh studio experience with tom as well um and i do want to add and maybe put a plug in for warren zanes who wrote the tom's biography the last few years of his life uh it was released last year it was a on the bestseller list um wonderful book called petty um uh, and uh warren spent you know every waking moment of his life for the last few years having coffee lunch and dinner with tom uh, uh, writing this, uh, his, 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 uh, biography. Mm. And um, all of that stemmed from him doing a shout out on stage at the Roxy X number of years ago in a wishful hope that maybe Tom Petty would hear about it. Probably. But I also want to say Warren is an amazing writer as well. He's a very talented. In fact, he, I hate him. He's such a great writer. <laughs> he makes it seem so easy. Yeah. But, I, you know, there's a couple of moments in the book where I, uh, you know, there were experiences that I'm in in, in the book. And, and I, I have to tell you, that's not the way I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> so he's taking a little bit of poetic license, but age allows us to do that. It's like fine wine. All I'm memories. saying is that's not the way I remember. I understand. I understand. <laughs> I understand. So uh, you go on to 100 dates with Tom. And, and did you keep up your relationship with Tom over the years? Uh, what are you personally? Well, not to the extent that Warren yeah. did. Um you know, I uh, we went on to tour with NXS. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went on to tour. Uh, we, you know, we performed with, uh, you know, James Brown, and <laughs> and uh, you know, one night we were doing a tour uh, uh, down. I think we were in South Carolina. We had a really nice sold out show, um, and we had been kind of. Uh, our tour had been crisscrossing the nation with with uh, Bruce Springsteen oh, and the E Street Band. Here we go. And then uh, you know the the promoter uh, or the club someone came into our dressing room and said, "Hey, there's a guy at the back door. He says he's Bruce Springsteen. He wants to come in." And we're like, "Will you let him in, please?" <laughs> and so he and Nils Lofgren walk through the door. And say, hey, man, you guys want to play some music together? We're like, absolutely, man. So we went out. We opened up our show and said, hey, 
it's you know we want to invite a, 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 a friend of ours to join us and right. he and Niels Lofgren both came out on stage do you I remember ha- what you played I remember Bruce turning around to me and saying, hey, man, just watch my shoulder. And he kind of set the to- the tempo for Stand By Me. Okay. Oh, no kidding. No Followed kidding. by Hang On Sloopy. <laughs> really? Well, we were kids and he knew it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm. he yeah. just pulled a few out of the hat that were easily accessible and, mm-hmm. and uh, the crowd went bananas. So no Badlands or Promised Land or th- that you recall? Yeah, it kind of goes into that. Uh, category of I don't remember much after he hit the stage, <laughs> but I know that we played and had a good time. I you know, remember watching his shoulder, which kind of translated to his hip down mm-hmm. to his foot, and I just locking in with Bruce. Sarah, you you're know? blushing. Mm-hmm. Are you a big Springsteen fan? I am a big Springsteen. Yeah, I can see you blushing a little bit. Yeah. Can I tell well, you, you he, have to be humbled in the face of that musical talent. Yes, you do. Yes, goes you do. Goes a little bit beyond "Stand by Me" and Slo- "Hey Sloopy." Yeah. <laughs> so, Woody, you've had these great musical experiences in in life, and um, the Del Fuegos. Uh, you've done some shows uh, after you uh, kind of you broke up at the end of the '80s. Is that right? The '90s. Early '90s. Yeah. Early '90s, and then you've you've come back together on a couple of occasions. Yeah, then, we right? ha- yeah, we actually did a few years back. We did a, like a 13-city tour. Cool. Really? Yeah. How was that? <laughs> well, I have to say, uh, in the band's defense, we were better than ever. Is it, that right? The music was absolutely amazing. Okay. You know, so for two hours a night, it was amazing, <laughs> right? Now, how far had But then you have 22 hours to deal with, so... Woody's story uh, gets even more interesting, uh, if that's even possible. Woody, during that time uh, with the Del Fuegos, you publicly, you share your story, both in print and, and through interviews. Uh, you developed a problem with um, with substance abuse. Well, yeah, true. I, you know, I did, I had my own, uh, I had my own experiences with substance use um, and, um and it kind of started back around the time that we were zigzagging around the nation with with uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, and I started developing a little bit of a relationship with Max Weinberg. Oh, sure. Um, who would kind of look at me and say, "Are you okay?" Uh-huh. Um, you know, and also Stan Lynch from the Petty Band right. would look at me and go, "Are you okay?" Um, and I think you know by the end. Uh, by the by, uh, you know, 1990 or so, everyone in Los Angeles had looked at me and said, "Are you okay?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was the last person to kind of get the, you know, get the memo that there was something going on here, and and I needed to step up and 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 really take a hard look at, uh, you know, I was playing music, um, but not for the sake of playing music, but it was just kind of a, kind of a. Um, uh, kind of a pathetic existence, if, mm-hmm. if I were to be honest with you. Were you surrounded, and I don't want to throw anybody in particular under the bus or, or his names out there, but were you surrounded by that uh, that culture, and was it very easy to get immersed in in the 80s? Well, yeah, it was sad. I mean, you know, the record companies didn't, act, you know, they didn't discourage it. They wanted you out there selling records. You know, why don't you guys go to Europe? You'll sell more records, come back, go to the East Coast and tour to the West Coast. You'll sell more records. And, and you know, um, sometimes, you know, substance use uh, fueled me in, a, in an unhealthy way. Um, but sometimes it saved my life uh, and helped me get through the, 
the pain and the the you know the awful experiences of trying to you know get through a tour um so i'm i'm not going to just totally discredit that substance use uh was always this terrible thing for me but in the end it's the one thing that that turned on me and and uh um you know is is a part of as a part of my story it's the the one thing i had to say that was i thought was helping me which which is actually tearing me down yeah does yeah. that make sense it makes yes. it makes total sense it makes and total i'm sense. assuming in the industry like you said they wanted you out there touring making money becoming famous and whatever you needed to do to make that happen for you in the studio you know yeah and you know anthony from the chili peppers they were mm-hmm. label mates of ours and um, and f- and I lived in their neighborhood, uh, Flea and Chad and Anthony. We all lived over in Hancock Park in L.A. And Flea said, um, you know, being on the road is like having the flu 20, 22 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And then you go on stage and you feel great for two hours. Oh, my gosh. Right? And then you walk off stage and it's right back to, you know, to feeling um, aches and pains and tired and mm-hmm. sick and... And so, you know, obviously I was medicating uh, all along the way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for me, the one experience that stands out the most was when the band Blind Melon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. um, You know, we we were on a tour bus. They were on a tour bus. We're all zigzagging around the United States. And the difference was is their singer was dead on the back of the tour bus in a a bunk. um, And they didn't know it, you know. Um, and on our tour bus, I kind of feel today uh, that I, that was going to be me. I was going to be the next guy. Wow. You know. Talk about a wake-up call. Well, you said um, earlier in this conversation, you said it was a pathetic existence, that you weren't playing the music for the music, and here you are touring, spending 22 hours feeling miserable for that two hours of being on stage. And just to go into that a little bit more, um, when did that change, or when did you really realize and keeping up the illusion of this rock star and this image and thousands of people screaming and celebrating you while inside you're in pain yeah well you know i mean if i were completely honest with you it was around 1987 i had a huge wake-up call um and this this is kind of a pathetic experience for me uh, but it's a reality. I like to call them opportunities for it, growth. Okay, it was an opportunity for me to look at getting honest with myself, that I was on stage performing, um, and I was killing it, by the way. You know, I, I was, we were so well rehearsed, and the band sounded so great, and uh, everything was really, you know, I'm, geez, I'm on the stage of Madison Square Garden. How bad is that? It's like the coolest stage in the in the world. Sure. On the planet. Um but all of a sudden, uh, in the middle of my performance, I thought about the drugs that I had in in my uh, uh, dressing room, and I started to think, "Oh my God, someone's back there, and they're going to find them." And so we have to hurry up and get off stage so I can get back there. And so I was completely robbed of the experience of performing uh, at Madison Square Garden, and I had to get honest with myself, and uh, because I was preoccupied with uh, my addiction the obsession of the mind i you know i don't know who said that first but 
uh, there it is. Yeah, the I, obsession of the mind. Yeah. Um, boy, and, and, and so that's your defining moment, Woody. Um, I want to remind people we're talking with uh, Mr. Woody Geisman. I'm a Fa- mister now. Yeah, mister. We've gone <laughs> to mister. And uh, he is a founding member of the Del Fuegos, a fantastic band back from the 80s, Boston-based band. My co-host Sarah Mabardi and I are talking with Woody about his life experience with the band and on and beyond the band and um, how that's informed him. So, Woody, you have this wake-up call where you have this obsession, this mental obsession. You're in the middle of a, of a set at Madison Square Garden, which really should have been the set of your life, the memory of your life. And your memory reel gets interrupted by this obsession with the drug that are back in your dressing room and you call that a wake-up moment so what did you do next you come off stage and and i continued to use for several years okay. if yeah. i'm completely yeah. honest yeah. with you um and people who would come up to me and say you know i'm a little worried about you um you know i would just ignore them or say you're just jealous you know mm-hmm. uh but there was a time uh in uh on may 4th of <laughs> 1988 when uh, a, a very dear friend, uh, lovely musician, uh, came up to me and said the words, I'm worried about you, uh, but he extended an olive branch and said, I want you to come to my house in Santa Monica tomorrow, and here's my number, call me. So that was May 4th, so, uh, I'm sorry, May 3rd. Of 1987. Of 19, yeah, and so, 19- actually, 1988. 1988, sorry. And yeah. so... Um, the next day, I thought, oh, geez, I'm going to Santa Monica. We're going to sit down and get, you know, write some music, and, and things are going to get hot and heavy. It's going to be cool. And uh, so I, you know, called them up and said I'm on my way, and, and I showed up, and uh, and uh, um, he said, let's let's go to my kitchen where there was uh, uh, this uh, book on, on the table, uh, this blue book. Um, with it? and yeah. his wife uh, was there waiting uh, as well and so they uh, they had a little uh, uh, intervention in their kitchen that day uh, probably should have taken me to detox would have been this you know if it were sure. me, I would today I would have taken that person to a detox but instead of that uh, we went out to a recovery meeting that night and I had my first exposure to uh, to uh, to the fellowship of AA and I thought all of these people are absolutely crazy. Why are they happy? First off, stop there. Why are these people so happy? What is wrong with them? You know. Uh, so that was May um, 1988, and so by April of 1990, April 12th specifically, I looked in the mirror and said, "You know what? It's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to uh, either be in or out." And uh, so. Uh, uh, I asked myself if I was uh, willing to go to any length here, and uh, and did, and it's I've been good since then. Fantastic! How's that? What a story! I strongly believe everything happens as it should. Well, but that was the beginning of my journey and and exposure to the the writings of Bill W. and Dr. Bob and and even um, you know psychoanalyst Carl Jung. And, you know, at one point they said that, you know, some people um, benefit from 12-step recovery, uh, but some people require professional help. And so that was a real turning point for me. Um, I packed up my bags and left Los Angeles and went to, uh, back to, came back to Boston. And uh, not immediately, but I got back into school 
and wanted to become that professional, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Knowing that some, you know, some people and seeing some people uh, trying to get well, but uh, um, they would come into like the rooms of recovery and then they would drop out and disappear. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, geez, I just talked to them yesterday. What happened? And now we're talking about going to their funeral next week. Yeah. You know? So how can I be of service here? And, uh, you know, someone said to me, uh, if you're going to keep what you have, you have to learn how to give it away. Um, and so I was at the very beginning of a learning process where I was going to dedicate myself to treating people who needed help. And that's where right turn comes in. And that's where right turn comes in. How is it different? There's other addiction treatments, uh, sober houses, programs. Tell us about right turn and how you incorporated your music background and your art background into this. Well, thank you. A really good question. So my uh, my sense was that uh, right turn needed to be a very comprehensive program. Um, uh, of psychiatry and psychotherapy and group therapy, but also um, celebrating my experiences with, you know, at the hospital I did a drum group, you know, and I watched people with in early, early, early stages of acute withdrawal uh, actually experience pleasure for the mm. first time, and you would see them smile, and they would like oh my God, is my face broken? I just smiled and I'm like, no. <laughs> this is just, uncomfortable. You right? just had fun, you know. And I remember psychiatry running down from the psychiatry floor to the addiction floor and saying, stop this noise. No and kidding. I was like, you know what? I've been thrown out of better places than this. Yeah, so. no kidding. <laughs> you know, um, so that's where the creativity piece kind of, you know, um, came t- into play. And then... Um, uh, as I uh, opened the doors of Right Turn and people started filing through the door, uh, trying to uh, gain a better understanding of w- how I could meet their needs. Um, and I, re- I call them the OGs, the original gangsters of Right Turn, and they're still around. Um, and, you know, they, uh, they said, let's start a group. You know, we still have the artist and recovery group every Thursday night at Right Turn 15 years later. People still show up and they tell their story and they do a round robin discussion, kind of like a 12 step recovery meeting, but it's not. And that's so huge that 15 years later, that's they're still here. They're still they're still coming. That's a big statement. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Um did I answer your question? So that's how it Indeed. kind of all came together. Yep, incorporating th- the arts into Right Turn. And people, I want to make sure I say this before I forget, that people can learn more about Right Turn at www.righthyphen.org. Right, right. And learn more about the program. And I, I have to say, and, and I hope anyone listening would show up at Right Turn and come in and come to a Saturday night musical performance, which are, you know, from eight to 10, it's a sober cafe, there's no alcohol, you can hear good music, um, comedy. Uh, we even have a karaoke night occasionally. Really? I'm, well, that I'm seals it right you. there. I'm looking right at you and saying yes. Sarah? Yes. Sarah. Don't run wild, <laughs> me and you, karaoke night. There you go. But let me tell you, quite seriously, I've uh, the cafe is located at four uh, 440. 440 Arsenal Street, Arsenal Street. in Watertown. Yep. Mm-hmm. The time of the performance, Woody? 8 p.m. 8 p.m. till around show 10? Up, show up at 7.30 to get a seat. Mm-hmm. Make sure you get a seat. How many seats do you have? 
It typically holds 50 people. 50 I, people. I performed there a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. and, and like 80 people, 70, 70, 80 people showed up. So, Woody, how does the general public keep up to date and uh, get a schedule of when these performances are for the GM? You know, go to Facebook yep. and, and like Right Turn, okay, and you'll get any updates on uh, yeah. who's performing. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Can't thank you enough for your time. Hey, thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to this special edition of Chapters. My name's Jim Derrick. I'll see you next week.